Welcome to Bewildered. I'm Martha Beck, here with Rowan Mangan. At this crazy moment in history, a lot of people are feeling bewildered, but that actually may be a sign we're on track. Human culture teaches us to come to consensus, but nature, our own true nature, helps us come to our senses. Rowan and I believe that the best way to figure it all out is by going through bewilderment into bewilderment. That's why we're here. So, Marty, I think there's a pretty good chance that our listeners are out there going, oh, wow, I have a lot of cultural messages in my head and Mm -hmm. it's not that easy to access the voice of my true nature. Yes. And I don't know, they might be thinking, is there anything else that I could do other than listening to this podcast to help me learn to listen to my heart? Well, I had this question, even as a young child, I would say, I am not happy. And people would say, well, it's all in your head. And I'd be like, I know, get it out of my head. But nobody could really help me do that. And so um, in my 20s, I sort of made up a system to help me detach from cultural messages and connect with my true nature. And it ended up being my career as a life coach and then training people to do the same thing. And I think that, you know, it's just like people who feel the urge to heal themselves, help others heal and heal the world, Mm. that this this term life coach sort of slots into that in our culture. And people take the training to hang out a shingle and become life coaches. People take the training because it's like getting life coaching yeah you know and people also take the training just to learn to access their own true nature yeah it was originally just a access your own true nature course Mm -hmm. but when you've mastered that you really want to share it with other people and people want to be shared with and they will pay you money so if that's the way you want to go that's why it ended up being life coach training but it's actually wayfinder which is different. It's about finding your way by connecting with your true nature and and steering your own course. So if people are interested, you can Google Wayfinder Life Coach Training or go to marthabeck.com and you will find your way. Yes, you will. Hi, I'm Martha Beck. And I'm Rowan Mangan. And this is Bewildered, the podcast for people trying to figure it out. I myself have been trying to figure it out by digging in the backyard for clues. And then Marty walked by and looked at my little archaeological dig and she just figured it out on the spot. Mm -hmm. I I did. And here's what I have to say. It's not what you're digging for. Mm -hmm. It's what you're digging through. It's what you're digging through. Wow, that sounds wise. If only I knew what it meant. Mm, If only I knew what it meant. Here's (laughs) what I know. If you don't understand, Uh you're just not ready. Ah, okay. Mm. So anyway... What are you trying to figure out for real, Ro? Honestly. Okay, what am I trying to figure out? So there's this funny thing that I do and it's when I'm like trying to kickstart a new phase in my life or a new uh, focus in my life, I need to move furniture around. I need to rearrange my physical environment. So I'm trying to figure out at the moment how to shift a bed somewhere and a desk somewhere else and just um, randomly in the night just randomly in the night <laughs> pushing furniture out the window yeah that's me so I'm trying to figure that out and it's it's interesting because it's always it always signals a new time it know? is interesting I know exactly the feeling actually it's something I've noticed a lot in coaching that when people are ready to shift something fundamental in their identities they start moving furniture a lot huh 
I think it has to do with the fact that uh, gorillas make nests. Oh my God, I knew you were going to say that because when I start like doing my little diagrams of bed, desk, I just think this is exactly what gorillas must do when they want to make nests. Out in the wilderness with their diagrams and their spreadsheets (laughs) (laughs) and their arguments. No, Ethel, I I was there last week. (laughs) Yeah, they move around a lot. I've seen them. I went to Rwanda and I saw the, the gorillas and they make these humongous nests. Can you imagine, you know how big a bird's nest is? Imagine a 700-pound animal making a nest. Like I think it sounds day. lovely. You know I'd what, like though? a nest. I was just thinking if we could get a gorilla to come move your furniture, that would figure a lot of things out because those suckers are strong. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm all for there it. There you go. I'm all for it. Gorilla furniture. Boom. So that's me, gorilla nests in the night. Um, how about you, Muddy? What are you trying to figure out? I seriously, I'm trying to figure out. They're saying that COVID lockdown may end someday. I don't know. It's a rumor. Mm. Um, at the point in the future when we're all listening to this, it's probably the middle of another pandemic. I don't know. Yeah. But I'm marketing a book, as you know, and I have to sort of be in the world again after not being in the world for a long time. And here's what happens to me when I'm not among the peoples mm. I drift. No, you drift. You drift. drift. Where do you drift to? Oh, I drift into a sea of weirdness. Mm. I'm a very, very weird person by nature. By nature, keyword. So, yeah, I think I remember getting up the first month of the lockdown and thinking, no one's coming in the house and I'm not going to see anyone for a month. And just my inner weird Mm. Just rearing up its head and going, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> just like, oh, here we go. Yeah. Getting limbered Baby. up. Baby. Yeah. 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 So I went and got weird and it didn't end there. I mean, it went on for months and months and months and months. And every month I got weirder and weirder and weirder and weirder. Yeah. I think a lot of us have had this experience actually of of just your, your little foibles become exaggerated when they're not kind of ground down on the edges by constant contact yeah. with, with the culture right it's like nell and her twin sister creating a new form of english Turn Turn in the wild. so that's how we've started Nish. talking to each other <laughs> yeah. rose digging in the backyard i'm like digging the yard i don't know making um, references to movies that no one else can probably remember except us well if they don't understand they're just not they're ready. not ready go they're rent the movie now love it it's very poignant it's poignant. Anyway, I do think that we all have this new level of weirdness. And one of our, our listeners wrote in, our wonderful listener named M.A. Travel Dreamer. Apparently, Love you, ma. Ma Travel Dreamer. Ma Travel Dreamer, which could mean it's our travel dreamer. Could mean it's the mother of all travel dreamers. Could mean a master's degree in travel dreaming. Could be, yeah. So Country uh, singer about... Their own travel dreaming. My travel dreaming. My travel dreaming. My travel. My travel dreaming. Anyway, my travel dreamer says, Mm. this podcast, quote, allows me to be more eccentrically myself. That's, and what more could we wish for for any of our listeners, really, than to be more eccentrically themselves? I love it. I love being, that's the whole thing of this podcast is eccentric is fine. Right, but eccentric can also be difficult. Change, eh? Mm, It sure does keep happening. I feel like there's something that you, Martha Beck, have created that 
will help us understand how change affects us and how to manage it. Oh, by coincidence, now that you mention it, I have. It's called The Change Cycle. Mm. It's about four aspects of the whole process of change. And we've put the information together in one handy place so that the people can refer to it when they're going through change. And you know what else? We also made podcast episodes about each of the four squares in the cycle that are also on this new page that we've made for the peoples. Well, how remarkable is that? All right, you can find out all about the change cycle at marthabeck.com slash change. So on this podcast, we do tend to talk about, you know, the getting out of the consensus point of view of the culture and finding our way back to our own true nature, which is coming to our senses. But what we don't often talk about is what happens then, right? You become more eccentrically yourself and then you go back out of your little, you know, pandemic bubble into the world and there you are in your with your little archaeological dig and your little robe <laughs> slinking across the floor <laughs> to a baby in a room you're not supposed to be in in a that's, Zoom meeting. It's a <laughs> callback to a previous episode. <laughs> yeah, that is a different episode. Keep listening. Keep listening. Anyway, yes, I, like we all come out of isolation and how do we – we're not – we don't want to come to consensus again. But – It's when hard. You, when you don't come to consensus – there are pressures. Yeah, it's like, oh, it's easy to for you to say, Marty and Roe, about just come to your senses, but you don't know what it's like to be in the world. We don't. We don't. We've we like no hang idea. out in our house. We never go anywhere. We're even, weird as shit. Even if there is no pandemic. Um, yeah, if, if mm. someone were to pull a pandemic as a hoax, we would be pleased. <laughs> <laughs> then nobody would be hurting and we could also stay in the house. But uh, this whole episode is about this idea of once you've discovered yourself, whether it's because you're coming out of a lockdown or because you've just discovered something about yourself that's new, going out into the world as someone who's away from consensus, how are you brave enough to be weird? Yeah, it looks weird to go out there as yourself. Yeah. So like one time when I was teaching sociology 101 back in the days when I was earning my pay by teaching the introductory courses before I dropped out of academia to be weirder. Um, <laughs> we did this unit on what actually shapes behavior. And I asked them to go out and break a law, but mm-hmm. not one that hurt anyone. So they like didn't stop at a stoplight, came to a, That could have hurt someone. <laughs> I mean, a stop sign, a rolling stop and a stop sign. Don't do these things. I'm not, it's been many years. Anyway, it's been many years since I <laughs> advised people to break laws in my classes. Yeah, it's kind of, that's not a smart thing to say on something that's <laughs> slated for public consumption. No, I said, you've probably broken the law. You haven't parked in the right place. You didn't come to a full stop. I said, now go out and break a norm, a social norm. So it's well within the law, but it's just not normal for your social group. Uh-huh. And what did they do? Well, my favorite one was, and I don't know how they had the courage to do this, which goes to the topic of our podcast, because it takes courage. One woman went home to her very traditional family, her huge family. They all had people come in for Thanksgiving dinner. And being Australian, you might not know as much about Thanksgiving dinner as an American U.S. person might. It has something to do with turkeys. It has everything to do with turkeys. Everything. I think America was founded by turkeys. It was. Yeah. It absolutely was. The founding turkeys. Mm. Without them, the founding fathers would have starved. It was all about the turkeys' self-sacrifice. So the food you eat at Thanksgiving 
is what you would call utensil food. It's gravy, mashed potatoes, stuffing, like, I don't know, string bean casserole with canned goop on it. Would you call that utensil food, would you? (laughs) (laughs) Come to Thanksgiving, we'll be serving utensil food. Imagine if that just doesn't get the mouth watering. (laughs) You can tell that... Part of this story is influenced by the fact that our daughter is starting on solids and we've been thinking a lot about utensils. Oh, well, and in the middle of a pandemic, it's like, here, shove this into your face. Who cares what, <laughs> what it looks like or how you look afterwards? The dogs will feast on the detritus from your face. Look, Lila, utensil food. <laughs> <laughs> now that you're 10, it's time for utensil food. Um, so she's getting into utensil food. I'm giving it up. Anyway, um, Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving, sloppy food, gravy food, gotcha, pumpkin pie, the whole works. Mm-hmm. This young, brave college student went home to her traditional family and and sat at Thanksgiving dinner at her massive family table and ate the entire meal without utensils. She just used her hands. She didn't use utensils for utensil food. No, I know. Shocking. That's exactly what I'm saying. It breaks God. a norm. Utensil food? No utensils. So she was like mashing it into her mouth with her her hands. She was putting her (laughs) face right down on the plate. (laughs) And the interesting thing is not that people said, what are you doing? No one said a word. In fact, Uh, all conversation stopped. There was deadly silence except for her going. (laughs) 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 And then after like 10 minutes, her father at the head of the table jumped to his feet and screamed, I just can't take it anymore, and ran from the room. And the whole family just stared at her, and no one said anything. It was the most interesting story. So how did she feel? Was it hard or was it? She was thrilled. I don't know. She must have been well-raised by that loving family because she did not flicker in her self-esteem. She thought it was hilarious. (laughs) And she was very proud of herself, and I think she got an A in the chorus right at that moment. But what was so fascinating is the way the culture of her family reacted to this aberrant behavior. Like, they didn't react by just surfacing the issue and saying, that is not a cultural norm among our group. Right. Instead, it was just like, what do we do? What do we do? Because the culture never talks about its own rules. Right, right. So everyone just panics if they get broken. Alice Miller, the psychiatrist, called this that rule, thou shalt not be aware. And it means never, ever be aware that there's a code of conduct that's shaping you every minute. And the moment you make a statement on it, the, it's like the secret is broken and the culture can be rattled. Huh. And that's like what must never happen. Why do you think that is? I think it's because um, humans rely so much on cooperation and it's kind of a shorthand for everybody working together because if everyone were working completely individualistically, um, it would take a lot of time to assign roles or something. I don't hmm. know. It's, it's, it's interesting though. Like there's that description of like we're, we're not just going to be uncomfortable or anything. We're going to panic yeah. because someone's not eating with a knife and fork. Well, this is why I, I just wrote in this book I just published. People like someone who decides to say – put a menorah and a Kwanzaa celebration together with Christmas in a schoolroom can be seen as attacking our way of life. Right. And they're trying to steal Christmas. Anything that's like, <laughs> <laughs> there is an alternative culture that we might also observe. It basically says our culture is not supreme and it's seen as attacking our way of life because 
the way the culture does things and never talks about it actually is the way of life. Do you think that there's something going on where we want to pretend that culture is nature? Like we don't want to pretend that we've just made up this and that it's just a rule. We want to act as though it's like come down yeah. from heaven. It's physics. It's not, you well, know. We say it's physics because our, our sort of religion is science. But in other cultures, it's this has come down from God or the gods or whatever. And there Same is, thing. Like the moment something is is repeated, it starts to take on the flavor of we have to do it this way again. This is what we talked about last time. It must because it was. Mm. And nobody talks about it must because it was. Everybody just starts doing it that way. So it must be something deeply biological. So, so what we're going to talk about today is like what happens when you break those rules, what happens when you be yourself, and how do you cope with, with the wrath that comes down upon yeah. you? Yeah. Wrath. Sorry, American. I thought wrath. you meant like a dog would be like, or a rough, like in Elizabeth in England, they'd mm. come, they'd come and put a rough on you. A rough. <laughs> I would say wrath. You would say wrath. Wrath. Yeah, the wrath. Let's call the whole thing off. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good idea. So, what does the cultural pressure to not be weird? What does that look like? How do we encounter that? It, you know, it can be the silent treatment, as mm. in nobody look like if you put out something on Instagram and no one likes it, like that could it could be just the great silence that my student encountered at Thanksgiving dinner. I think social media is actually a really interesting example of that because I think people, yeah, people definitely because when yeah. you if you respond to something, you're putting your own name up against yeah. there, and so then you might be endorsing the countercultural thing. Yeah, <laughs> or. You could get people like flat out attacking you. I put yeah. out something once that said, you don't have to tell everyone everything about yourself, but you have to tell someone every, everything about yourself. Yeah, that was it. And I was thinking, because otherwise you'll be so alone. Like you've got, somebody's got to know you. Right. Like, people took it as you should tell, you should not have a single secret in your no life. No secrets. I got slammed. Oh my goodness. Did they attack? They wanted their secrets. Mother Beck, how dare you be so... You're ruining Christmas and secrets at the same time. <laughs> and you leave my affair alone. <laughs> so you were attacking their way of life. I was attacking their way of life. That's really interesting. Like anyone who's weird is attacking their way of life. Yeah. You, This six-year-old kid looks like a boy but feels like a girl attacking our way of life yeah. that six-year-old doesn't want to attack anybody they just feel that way yeah but it's seen you know gender is so fundamental to the culture that it's seen as attacking the standard roles of gender because it does it yeah. says it's not the way the culture says this this child by nature is not the way the culture says you're supposed to be so it seems like what the culture wants to do is is contain or constrict to fewer categories right like if you're talking about i want to have some sort of kwanzaa celebration or a menorah or whatever it's about opening up right instead of keeping it narrow right and there's something about the one true thing and Mm. i think it may have to do with monotheistic religions because only coming out of like the middle east do you have religions where there is one god and only one god and one of the big sins is to think there's another god Right. And so um, Christianity, Islam, Judaism all come out of that. But if you go to the East, is it the same in the East? You grew up sort of Asia adjacent. (laughs) So So I'm automatically. You automatically know everything about it. But like, is it more uh, accepting of multiplicity, do you think? 
I think that one thing that I have sort of picked up along the way is that where more Western cultures tend to locate the individual as the unit, the Eastern, you know, religions and Eastern cultures are more likely to locate the community. Now, interesting. I don't know what that does. That, I don't. I don't know what that do. does. It, it flattens diversity within the group, and that that there's good research on that. So in a in a very um, traditional culture where the group is more important than the individual, there's actually very little um, attention getting behavior. I, don't you say in Australia the tall poppy syndrome? You'll get, yeah, you get yeah. smacked if you rise above anybody else. Yeah, that's true. I think, but I, I, I can't help thinking that it depends on what your culture decides to feel is fundamental to it, you know, mm. because I was thinking I've lived in Thailand, the ge- gender stuff, we were using gender as an example. Gender is, is, a, is not a particularly um, intensely held hmm. notion there. You've got gatoi, which are the, um, the, you know, lady boys, we call them, and then um, lesbians are very accepted Hmm. in Thai culture by and large. And so it's just that sort of um, I think it's probably going to do the same thing anywhere that culture is functioning. It just won't Hmm. choose the same things to get its knickers in a twist about. Maybe it has to do with just individual personalities. Like um, there's this family in Russia that went off into the hinterlands to be very, very true to their religion when the communists took over. And they, um, like, they made rules against things like eating squirrel because it was a sin. Well, I've always felt that. Well, yeah, but if you're not, if you're starving in the Siberian taiga, it's a different thing. Marty, I've never eaten a squirrel in my life because that's how dearly for? I hold that. What the hell principle. were you digging for? <laughs> <laughs> bones, bones of squirrels. I eat bones of squirrels. <laughs> I can eat a bone. I can munch on a bone, can't I? Anyway, I, they had this very narcissistic family family member who was like, "No, I will give you the rules from God, and you may not eat a squirrel." And maybe it's just narcissists <laughs> say that they know the right way. I don't. I don't know, but I do know that given a little reiteration and time people will just start repeating the same types of norms and then um, attacking people who break those norms. Or maybe it's just about having some kind of norm. So in Thailand, it's fine if you're, you know, biologically a dude, but you, you know, want to dress like a woman or whatever, but you will wear a yellow shirt on Mondays to respect the king. Like, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You don't want to be caught Shoot. not wearing a yellow shirt on a Monday. I was in Thailand. I don't know what day of the week it was, but I don't think I wore a yellow shirt. <laughs> Dude. Damn. Dude, they have your picture up oh. somewhere. I, yeah. That's, oh, there's my one remaining word of Chinese after, after <laughs> majoring in Chinese as an undergraduate. I, yeah. <laughs> one of the best Chinese words. Anyway, um, all of this stuff combined... Uh, there's a, an, uh, a social anthropologist named Mario Martinez who calls it tribal shaming. Who calls when you break the rules of the culture, what happens to you? What happens is tribal to you? shaming. Yeah. Tribal shaming. Whenever you appear weird or different, you will be ashamed. And he says there are three ways that groups go about bashing individuals or, or smaller groups to try to get them into... In, into line with their particular worldview, their culture. And the three ways are abandonment, shame, and betrayal. And these are, at an emotional level, very, very, very deep down, 
those three penalties are unbearable to the human psyche. I just had a really funny example come to mind of a way that tribal shaming works that I've been noticing lately. And again, I'm so sorry, everyone, for for bringing everything back to mom stuff, but it is where my brain is right now. And uh, I just wonder how much of the mother-in-law trope comes down to a tribal shaming because, you know, so whatever's going on, everything changes in what's the best way to bring up a baby constantly, you mm-hmm. know, like new studies, new trends, la, 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 la. But your mother-in-law knows how it's done, you know, and and so I, there's just so many stories on my forums and in my groups and whatever where it's, it's like we want to do this this way. We want to – the baby should be sleeping on its back or whatever and – and what comes in is a very judgmental, very uh, punitive kind of energy, not necessarily from the mother-in-law, but from the generation before, hmm. um, saying you've got to do it this way and that there's so much conflict in that. Interesting. Did because, you know? Mm. I've never told you this. My undergraduate thesis, at, shall I mention that I went to Harvard? Sorry, where? Uh, no place you would have heard of. Anyway, um, I so, went to- I don't know why, but I suddenly feel like drinking. <laughs> <laughs> I went to China and, and I wanted to study women in traditional China before the communists came in. Problem was they never wrote anything down because women were prohibited from learning to write and it takes like 12 years of dedicated study to learn to read and write Chinese. So I went and I gathered folk tales. I had people tell me folk stories mm-hmm. and I found, you know how the stepmother's always the wicked one in the, oh, yeah, yeah. In the West? In China, it's always the mother-in-law. Really? And the mother-in-law is the demon figure. And it's huh. exactly that. The the young wife comes in. She's probably like 13. This is, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, pre, no, I'm not even joking. This is pre-communist China. Yeah. And um, the mother-in-law proceeds to enact upon the daughter-in-law all the tribal shaming one could possibly imagine. I mean, it really, it gets gnarly. And all the happy endings are about the daughter, like, surviving till the mother-in-law dies. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't want to offend anyone out there. It's not that way under communism. Everything's perfect. <laughs> now I'm offending a whole different group of people. Anyway, I think that that's true. I think that uh, child-rearing practices and those very core behavioral guidance things are, like, very rigidly enforced generation to generation. Right. Um, and and ba- bringing up baby is the ultimate time to acculturate someone right exactly yeah Yeah. so the mother-in-law is like i'm gonna bear down and make my daughter-in-law do it my way yeah yeah it's fascinating isn't it yes so all of this comes back to what martinez calls tribal shaming yeah actually i think our friend liz liz gilbert is the one who coined that phrase and then attributed it to mario martinez because i looked it up under his name and all i found were pillow shams tribal, tribal shams pillow shams <laughs> remember and they, were, this. they were very attractive so now our house is full of tribal pillow shams this is what it's like to live with martha beck she wants to google tribal shame the next thing you know <laughs> your doorbell rings and you have six packages that say tribal sham. <laughs> I went so far as to order it. I have no fear of the tribal shams. What Liz does, what our friend Liz does is reverse plagiarism. 
You were saying this to me earlier that instead of taking someone else's idea and calling it her own, she'll come up with something brilliant and then assume someone else did it and say someone else. She'll just give them the credit. Yeah. She does it with me all the time. It's fabulous. (laughs) Anyway, this whole thing, the abandonment, shame, betrayal thing. I mean, all of us have been abandonment, like the, the silent treatment, as we said, with the internet. If that happens to you in your family... Like if that Thanksgiving dinner silence had gone on for days or weeks, mm. unbearable. The shaming, I mean, place we'll get to in a minute, it, like everyone's been shamed at school for stuff yeah. that they didn't even know was a thing. And then all the kids are, are mocking you. And for the rest of your life, your life is never the same after a group shaming experience. Yeah. I mean, it's a very effective form of social control, right? Yeah. And the to worst shame of someone. all, I think, is betrayal, where somebody's off at, let's say they're having a gossip session with some friends from work and you're, a friend, you're their best friend, but they decide to start bashing you along with the group because they're afraid of getting shamed. And then you hear that they've betrayed you. They, they didn't stand up for you. And it, it's a deep, deep wound. When somebody... Sorry, I, what would that look like? Give, give me a... Um, like... Uh, say you're part of, you, you have a best friend and you like to go out and dish about everybody at the office. You go out mm-hmm. for coffee and you think your best friends and that you share secrets about different people in the office. And then one day you overhear your friend with a group of other people from the office and guess what they're doing? They're telling the same kinds of nasty little stories about you to try to fit in with that group. That's a form of social betrayal. But is that tribal shaming? It is according to Martinez. Oh, yeah, well, what happens is the group as a whole moves against you. And so, well, for example, take survivors of sexual abuse. Raise your hand if you're one. Um, when someone reports sexual abuse, the entire culture has to change and um, address the perpetrator and disrupt the social order. I was just reading about a, a gymnastics coach who was abusing his athletes and it went on for years and years because he was a winning coach and no one wanted to disrupt the system so occasionally a girl would come forward and what would happen not only would the whole system shut down but the other girls who were being abused also would stay silent or Mm -hmm. side against the woman who was speaking out because they were afraid of disrupting the system got it that's social betrayal got it by the way the guy shot himself in his car so there you go oh well that's one response to cultural pushback when it finally comes when it finally comes yeah and it's interesting that you say that because i think that particular brand of um you know the the cultural rules around speaking up against perpetrators is has been changing the last few years with the me too movement right and we're seeing that a lot and and the shock (laughs) of um well, I don't want to get too nitty-gritty into our, our cultural stuff, but, you know, the shock of, of men, largely, yeah. um, powerful men who don't enjoy all of a sudden the the privileges yeah. of their status. That... Well, for that matter, I mean, over the last year, I've become really acutely aware of where I haven't stood up for people in underserved populations. You know, I've, I've, I'm part of the white entitled majority so just go along with it why raise a fuss you know and it's not, yeah. not nothing's wrong with me when i do that i'm betraying people of color people who have, are differently abled all kinds of folks who may be shamed by the culture and i'm not doing anything to stop it so yeah. that's kind of benign or passive 
um, betrayal, but it's still a betrayal. Yeah, it's about staying comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of standing up for somebody who is different and is claiming that. Yeah, it's actually an interesting point that discomfort is <laughs> in some ways an even like one of the strongest, um, what do I want to say, like conditioners. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Culture. Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah, and it, there's something about us. Um, back when I was teaching again in that course, um, there was a man who was a guest on a talk show. And this was when reality talk shows were getting really nasty. Mm. Um, I, I think some of them still are. Yeah, it was so funny. Once I went to be on one of those shows, oh, thank God they didn't want me in the end. But the usher who let me in, um, he was working like an intern working for the show. And then they had this thing where a woman was supposed to find out that her paternity test showed that her boyfriend wasn't the father. And they didn't have anyone to play. It was supposed to be a reality show. They didn't have anyone to play the father or the boyfriend. So the usher who let me in, the intern, ran on stage and <laughs> pretended to be the jilted oh boyfriend and threw chairs. And, oh, it was just, oh, I can't believe I was even in that studio. But I didn't leave because cultural pressure, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Anyway, there was a guy who was on one of these shows, and they said he had a secret admirer, and they read these love letters from the secret admirer, and he was all, aw. And then it turned out the secret admirer was a guy, <gasps> a dude, oh. a man. And um, the uh, when was this? I think it was in the nineties. Okay. And like a day or two after the show aired, the man just laughed along, ha ha ha. They brought on the secret admirer. They shook hands, blah blah. He went over to the secret admirer's house and and shot him in clear daylight, killed him. Wow. Because he would rather be a murderer in prison. Mm. Um, with the stigma of murderer, then the maybe I let another man admire me. Wow. That's how strong cultural yeah. pressure and shame is. Oh, that's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. We were talking about school before, and I think, you know, one place where almost everyone has one of those experiences is is school. For whatever reason, you know, I, th- I guess everyone's trying out the, you know, the culture and the, and the way that culture functions in in their sort of crude growing up sort of way, but I feel like the tribe of the schoolyard is always a really really strong thing. Yeah, right? the whole Lord of the Flies thing. I yeah, mean, I bullying. The girls were worse, but then I read Lord of the Flies and I was like, ah, because apparently you get kids that age. See, they're they're when moral reasoning develops in the early teens to late or to early twenties. There's a period where it's a little off. <laughs> yeah. So you get things like cultural pressure to conform. And that's combined with not a whole lot of empathy yet, not a lot of cognitive empathy because the brain hasn't really formed that. And it, there's not enough experience. Mm. And, and very sort of crude methods of enforcement. So you get, it goes on throughout life. It's just that it gets more subtle. So where... Right. In a schoolyard, it's, I mean, I remember kids just chasing me around, screaming the name Martha because they thought it was so stupid and (laughs) kind of, I still do, Martha. (laughs) And just running away from them with my nose in a book, which really made me look normal. I would run from people (laughs) while reading (laughs) because that that just made me fit right in. But um, you go all the way from there to Downton Abbey where it's like, where is your black tie? Yeah. I'll put it in my other suit. <gasps> shame, shame, shame. Yeah. So I it it can it persists but it's 
very strong at that age. And I remember, here's the thing. Yeah. Like, I've never asked you this. If I, if I were to ask you to draw me a picture of something, how would you feel? Anxious. Why? Um, because I, I don't think I can draw well. See, this is the thing. Right around 10 is when people start to be aware of creative quality like how good a drawing is or how good a poem is or whatever. Right. And so, Which is weird because that's a very subjective kind of thing, right? Right, yeah. But if you study child development in drawings, there's a really, really classic pattern that emerges, emerges as people age. Like there's a point where for some reason little kids go to the corner of a page and draw like a semicircle for the sun with rays coming out and uh-huh. it's always like the left upper corner. Yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't be the lower corner, but... And, and, and all kids do that. And it's not something they've seen. They just do it. Wow. And there's a place where they draw blue at the top of the page as the sky. And then gradually they learn that the blue goes all the way down to touch the horizon. Oh, wow. But when I was teaching as a teaching fellow um, in a drawing class at a university. Where was that? Just a random university. Harvard. <coughs> um, <laughs> Drink. It was so interesting because a lot of the kids would come in and they liked to draw kids they were 18 to I don't know 30 a lot of them were going into the design school or the architecture school but the majority of undergraduates who came in drew at exactly the level of 10 year olds wow because 10 was where they started to feel ashamed of not being able to do better Hmm. and if they could keep drawing through that if they dared to be weird to Mm -hmm. make pictures that were weird they would have continued the, the development of the, the brain and the hand and all of that, mainly the brain. But if they had stopped, it would just remain exactly where it was when they started to experience shame. Oh, fascinating. Which really makes me wonder about stopping at other things. Yeah. You know, like yeah. all kinds of things. Experimentation totally. with movement, invention, creation of all sorts yeah I mean it's so strange isn't it because it's like you know before I was saying it's about the culture wants to constrict and make fewer things and make the everything smaller and the same and the same and the same but it's also um it doesn't want you to grow past something it doesn't want you to you know and it's all about and yet the people inevitably that we look up to and that we make heroes are the ones who pushed it you At know? least the ones we make heroes of. I mean, maybe somewhere there are people making podcasts that are like, remember Fred? He never did anything. <laughs> never did anything even slightly outside the cultural bounds. Oh, Fred, mediocre Fred, we love you. <laughs> I mean, you can try to be the most perfect representative of your culture ever. Well, one thing that occurs to me is I think about class, you know, like you were talking about Downton Abbey or whatever, like class is like a little mini culture that is more... It, it, it's more visible to us because we can see it within our own culture, whereas a lot of the cultural stuff right. at large is, is sort of invisible. Well, you really had, you ran face first into that problem, didn't you, as a yeah. kid? Yeah. Oh, my gosh, yeah. I mean, I had the experience of going to um, a – I think I might have talked about this before. Anyway, I, at high school I went to a very, very posh private school as a scholarship kid, and so it was a very intense – You were not a posh I was not <laughs> – you never guess this, listeners. <laughs> yeah, I was not I was not from a wealthy background and I did not have experience in, in this kind of little um, 
what, like a little Upper bubble. Upper class enclave. Yeah, this little bubble that I came into and it was uh, it was a very intense experience of um, there was so much shaming because it was also it sort of coincided with mean girl stuff, which is tribal shaming mm-hmm. and and bullying stuff. And, I, you know, you've got to feel for these kids. Everyone's just trying to feel okay. Right. Like you can see that in the schoolyard sort of example. Everyone's trying to feel safe. It's the same thing as you saying I wanted to stay comfortable so I stayed quiet. Right. Most people aren't trying to shame someone else maliciously they're just trying to feel okay mean girls are a classic example of betrayers they betray their friends or they betray whoever's the down girl to be in with the up girls because because out of complete terror that that it would come down on them like you'll sell anyone down the river for the sake of keeping yourself safe for another day i mean it's it's brutal it is um yeah so i went to this school and it was all you know this school holidays, everyone has to go to this town in Queensland together, um, and and at, you know this what, one's like everyone's going and skiing. Groom koalas and, or something. Sorry. What do you do? Groom koalas. What's oh, the Australian? Oh, darling, no, we have people to do that for us. <laughs> <laughs> you know, surfing and you know beach sort of culture and. But this is. I mean, I want to. The, listeners get the real picture this is you getting up at four in the morning to take like six city buses into a totally different part of town i lived on the wrong side of town yeah and then you had to join the rowing crew so that you could fit in but you hated it but you would go at five in the morning anyway. i thought i would love it because i read a book about someone who loved it <laughs> you and i went that <laughs> don't dissimilar. make that mistake we both made that mistake yeah yeah, yeah so no it was it was it was it was an interesting experience for me. I will say that. It was gnarly. Yeah, yeah. It's okay to say it, bro. You can be brave enough to say it. It was gnarly. I just, I'm be. It's funny because I'm actually being careful because I met really wonderful people there, and that's that's the thing is that it's it's that yes, as a whole, the culture felt a certain way, and then over the years that I was there. But you don't want to betray anyone could, uh, by bringing, by saying that they were part of the negativity. It's a really interesting thing. As we grow older, we become more conscious of the dynamics of offending various people. Right. And it can get to be very thickety. Like it can get, yeah. you can really feel constrained in your behavior when you're trying both to stay out of tribal shaming directed at you right and also out of anything directed at anyone else oh that's so interesting because it's almost like here you and i are make making this mini culture of people who you know uh, endorse being coming to your senses and being yourself and so here i am but trying to be so careful not to tribally shame anyone who went to that school who wasn't part of our culture of thinking it's okay to be yourself <laughs> because they were subscribing to a culture. Oh, that's so funny. You're right. It's so tangled. So what do we do about all this? Like what, what is coming to your senses in the context of this particular issue? We're always telling people, don't stick with the consensus of the culture. Come to the senses of your nature. Right. Um, but if you do that, inevitably, you are going to look weird at some point to some group and that's scary yeah it's really really scary you could you could be tribally shamed you almost certainly will be tribally shamed you will be yeah Yeah. that's the thing like brace yourself it's coming so how what do you do well first of all i want to ask you a question about it Hmm. is it worth it like tribal shaming is terrifying it's you know it sucks 
Is it worth it to be yourself or should you just fall back in line? I could say it depends, but I'm not going to. I'm going to do a very unsocial science-y thing. I'm going to say, yes, it is worth it. Yeah. Unquestionably. And there, there are data to support it. Um, like one study showed it was a group of HIV positive gay men. Mm. And they tracked, this was back when people died of HIV really in droves. And they traced the, the, how sick people were and how soon they died. And it was directly correlated with how closeted they were. Wow. So they could be out to their friends and family, but, but closeted to the rest of the world. They would die sooner than someone who was fully out, even though the fully out person might have been persecuted by mm -hmm. the culture. Honesty is so important to the body and to the psyche that we get depressed, we get anxious, we get sick, and we even die faster if we're not ourselves. That's so interesting because you said... Yes, and there's data to support it. And I immediately thought, but let's Martha Beck 101 this because if I can ask myself, is it worth it? And I think of the fear of being tribally shamed and it's definitely there. And mm. then I just think of the relief in my body, come to my senses, the relief of of being true yeah. is is always stronger than yeah. the fear. So, yeah, so I agree. I'm I think experiencing it's right now a, a bit of this same issue because I said, I didn't say there's data. I said there are data because data is freaking plural. <laughs> the singular is datum. There are data. So as soon as I said that, I thought people are going to think I have bad grammar, but I don't. I actually have good grammar because there are things, correct? But now Ro said there is data. I don't know what to do with myself. What are people going to think? So I'm talking a good fight, but then I can get one little word wrong and I'm like, oh no, my knickers are knotted forever. When I was having morning sickness, I had to say to Marty, look, Marty, I know that I'm supposed to say nauseated. But I'm just going to say nauseous and you're just going to deal with it. You're going to know that I know that I should say nauseated, but I'm not going to say it because I feel like a freaking idiot. And you know how that made me feel? How? Nauseous. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, okay. So it's a thing. It's always Sorry, a no, thing. It's no. always a thing. I have another one. What? <laughs> I used to work in a library where the library staff culture was that you couldn't say focuses. You had to say Plural. foci? You had to say foci. I've been down that road. Foci? foci? I don't what even... kind of nonsense is that? Foci. What kind of Latin speaking And the nonsense? other thing everyone said as a culture was Wednesday. Wednesday. Oh, <laughs> Hi to anyone listening from the library. Oh, my God. <laughs> Wednesday and foci. Yeah. So good times. Shall we turn, shall we turn our foci to other days? <laughs> Let's do that. Um, so I, I was coming up with this metaphor that is either brilliant or terrible and only the tribal shaming will tell me which mm. um so we get cultural messages yes, right we do is it all right for me to just jump into this jump. yeah all right i'm gonna do it no it's not all right the culture will shame you jump 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 all right um so we get cultural messages coming in all the time mm. you got to do this you got to do that mm. don't be like this don't say that you know, live like this, wear that, have this much money, blah, 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 blah. Um, and it's like an inbox, right? It's like email coming in. Sort of. In a way, in if a you way. think about it. Into it. It's like, it's like a datum coming into our head. Exactly. Now, just stick real close with me here. I am. Cultural messages are emails coming into you. Hmm. And here's the trick. 80 to 85% of all email sent out there is spam. 85%? Yeah. 
So good heavens. That's what a lot of this stuff is going to be. A lot of these messages of what you need to be doing, do this, don't do that, say this, don't say that, uh, foci, <laughs> Wednesday, whatnot. <laughs> uh, so uh, we were, Marty and I were having this conversation a few days ago and I, I was trying out this metaphor. And here's the thing. You can... <laughs> so stupid with this metaphor right now. You, you're only feeling stupid because you fear tribal shaming. I Proceed. Do. Proceed. I do. I do. I fear it. Proceed. Deeply. All right. <clears throat> Here I go with my metaphor. I'm continuing down the path of my metaphor. You can mark messages as spam. Mm. You can, if you happen to use the mail service that a lot of us do, um, you can, yeah, just mark those messages as spam and what you're doing is you're training the filter and as more messages get recognized as spam, they get moved out of your inbox. And so that's what I'm proposing we all try to do is notice when you you feel tribal shamed or right. the threat of tribal shaming, which uh -huh. can even be worse. Just feel it in your body in terms of is it is it fear or is it freedom? The yeah. old Martha Beck 101. And then mark it as spam if it feels like spam. Yeah, if it feels like fear. Consider yeah. the source. I don't want any email from you. Yeah. We don't. Who wants email from their mothers-in-law about how to raise a baby? Not, not me. Many. I wonder if this is related to the fact that eighty to eighty-five percent of the nuts that squirrels hide, they forget about. It's those nuts are spam. They're spam. Spam nuts. Do you think they ever tribally shame each other about losing those nuts? Probably all the time. Yeah. It would, it would, it would make them so. And anyway, let's get back. <laughs> squirrels. We're back to digging in the backyard, and squirrels in Siberia never eat them. It's against the culture. Eat their bones, don't no, eat their I flesh. I think this is brilliant because if you just, it's, it's interesting how much of it is language based. Mm -hmm. If you, like, if you read something, this is something I, I noticed when I was getting hate mail a lot for not saying nice things about Mormons necessarily. Uh-huh. Um, necessarily. Got, you were necessarily not, not saying, saying nice. nice things about Mormons. And, and some of them took umbrage and they did write me hate Where'd mail. Where'd they take it? They took it, they took it to the bank, they took it to the post office and they took it to my inbox. Oh my. Oh my. And I learned very quickly that actually reading the words of a hate message Mm -hmm. would brand my brain like it, the brain is so keyed to receiving like to tracking tribal shame but if I had someone else read it and just tell me the gist of it it wouldn't brand my brain as much so just saying spam and just imagining that I have like a rubber stamp spam 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 and whatever comes in from somebody I don't respect or from you know whatever little tweak of culture I have chosen not to represent. Spam, spam, spam. It's and not the word spam. It's not a real message. It's trying to sell you something. It's trying to sell you. Ooh. There you go. Yeah. Are you going to sell your life to the spammers? Does your penis really need to be that much bigger? <laughs> <laughs> I thought we weren't going to talk about that on this episode. <laughs> For fear someone would shame me. I'm sorry, I just felt like we needed to put it out there. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and now, of course, everything is going to be... Everything is a dick that. joke. All right. <clears throat> okay, but no, I actually think that's a really brilliant thing to just 
envision what your life would be like if you followed every message that came in as spam and what a nightmare that would be and how you'd be immediately bankrupted and oh, hate oh, your life. Oh, yeah. You'd be giving your bank account details from someone in, to someone in Nigeria. <gasps> you would. Okay. So <laughs> this metaphor is getting contorted just the way you I decide, like it. This is who I am. I am like this and this is how I act. This is how I dress. This is how I say the word foci. <laughs> Whatever it is, you're just like, mm-mm. If anybody tries to dissuade me from this, I will be giving my bank details to a man in Nigeria who wants to take my money. Yeah. And and so as we like as we train our spam filter, as it were, like to to just ignore it's not like the messages still come in. I, I hasten to But they to kind add. of don't. They kind of bounce. The whole well, word They don't go to your really inbox. Good. They go to your spam folder. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. I've thought all this through. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so as it gets better, I think, you know, the thing is, is is if you're not Oh wait, I forgot to tell my other part of the metaphor. Oh well. Unsubscribe. <gasps> Ooh, unsubscribe. Yes. Yes. So some of them, they're not trying to sell you something. They're just something that you signed up to another long time ago and it's no ah. longer relevant. <laughs> actually love this metaphor so much so um so yeah you can also unsubscribe to things so as you unsubscribe to things as you mark things as spam what you're finding is that the mail that's coming through into your inbox feels really good and the messages are really clear right Mm. and so i think what we're edging up towards is the point where um, the cultural shaming has less power over you and mm-hmm. you can start to, I don't know, like you can start to own your weirdness. Well, and here's the thing. We were talking about how it's, you know, if somebody can convince other people that something's come down from on high or that they are the one true thing, the correct thing, mm-hmm. they can actually do a completely countercultural thing and attract followers. They can attract, they can effectively create a new culture. Now I'm not saying that's a great thing because we're all into nature, not necessarily culture, but I've watched in my life many times, uh, people who were considered weird and just stayed with it. I'll never forget seeing it as a, as a kid, a Mormon kid growing up, I saw someone on TV and they brought her on an interview and the interviewer said something like, you know, it's been said that you sleep with, uh, you know, men, women, everything. And she, she, and I expected her to just literally burst into flames. <laughs> and instead she went, sure, men, women, any size, any brand, bring them on. And I was like, oh my God, she just did away with all that shame wow, by yeah. refusing to buy it. She oh, and I remember Shirley MacLaine was being interviewed by Mike Wallace and he said, you know, you've written these loopy new age books about having multiple lives and stuff. And he, he was coming at her with some serious digs. And this was before new age was a, a thing. Mm-hmm. And Shirley MacLaine just shakes her head. It. And she says, Mike, 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 that does not become you. <laughs> and I was just like, you oh. go girl, man. When they go low, we go high. Uh, there as you Michelle go. Obama it's says. so true. My favorite story about this though. I think I stole this from Liz Gilbert, but maybe it's mine and I'm just attributing it to her. I'm sure that's what the case I'm pretty sure it was hers. Um, But she knew someone who was like becoming an artist, an American who'd gone to Paris to be a starving artist who would rise to greatness. And he was looking for a patron and starving in a garret in a sort of La Boheme kind of way. (laughs) And he eventually did catch the attention of a wealthy woman who loved his art and wanted to be his patron. Nice. Yeah. Score. So she said, you know, he he got an invitation to the party of the year at her palatial resort. And 
it, it, it was a costume party. So he was like, oh my gosh, this is my chance to get in with the nobility, with the, with the people who love art, with everything. This is going to make or break my career. So he spent all his money on this incredibly fabulous uh, costume that was a lobster. He was a human-sized <laughs> lobster. Awesome. And the, the, the arms stuck straight out and then bent at, the, at a right angle. So the, his arms were out to the square with these huge claws on them. Fantastic. Yeah, it was amazing. And uh, so the, <laughs> this can only go to good places. So he trudges through the streets of Paris. He gets to the palatial estate. He gets through the guards and everything. And he goes in. And it turns out the costume party has a theme. And the theme is the court of Louis the Fourteenth. So everybody's there in powdered wigs and robes, silken robes. And Those really high wigs, the white faces. Right, right. The so look. they're all like going around to chamber music. And he walks in with his arms spread wide as a massive red lobster. Oh, my God. And, and listen, he, at that moment, he knew it, it could go one of two ways. Right. It could be the worst day of his life or he could just freaking own it. Own it. So he decided to own it. And of course, he was the hit of the party. Yeah. Oh, I love that story so much. He was hilarious. Everybody thought he was fantastic. And what they want, they didn't want a conformist artist. They wanted someone dressed as a lobster. Of course. Seems obvious in retrospect, right? It just reminds me of this cartoon of, and the, the picture in the cartoon shows someone kind of <laughs> draped over a chair that's been laying on its side. Mm -hmm. and the And the caption says... You're not doing it wrong if no one knows what you're doing. <laughs> okay. That's you know? how I'm going to sit from now on. I just think it's, um, it's a way to set yourself. Like, all right, so for me, my only way of dealing with the posh private school and the fact that I had no way of competing in that particular tribe, right? Yeah. I couldn't go to this place on these school holidays. I couldn't. You know, had to have, groom your own koala. Could not groom my own koala. No, I didn't even have a koala. I only had a platypus. That's how <laughs> terrible my social status was. Um, and so the only thing that I could find to do was just to completely create, not create another tribe, but create another um, value system. A counterculture. Yeah, a counterculture. And so what ended up happening with me and, and ultimately a few friends is is we we started sailing on tall ships and we got oh wait 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 <laughs> we it's, it's, look it's a long story it's hard to explain just, we wore okay. lobster costumes so I was at school I had all the wrong clothes couldn't take the right vacations but I then I just started sailing tall ships wait found a time machine went to the 17th century <laughs> like you literally skimmed over that like it was nothing you sailed on those ships that have big masts and sails like whaling vessels from the 19th century yeah we never ever ever used a harpoon in, in only on anger. the other girls <laughs> hello <laughs> <laughs> no i mean that is a very very countercultural thing to do like you did something so far outside that it was cool well there we were like in our like very fancy school uniforms you know private school darling and um we would put on our crew shirts for our our ship you know our ship <laughs> so it, doesn't, it doesn't really sound like you know the alternative to the the wealthy school does well that's it? what like, i'm saying it's not like everybody's like write a note tall ships yeah when my child is 13 <laughs> i live in iowa find a tall ship <laughs> yeah so we would put these on over our school uniforms and i always remember just that feeling of walking along and 
We looked stupid. <laughs> Absolutely stupid. But what we could convey was, I'm not trying to look like you. Right. I'm not trying. I've got a different system going on here. And that definitely saved me through all that sort of awful social tribalism of of high school. So what happens with people who dare to be weird Mm -hmm. is that they actually become influencers. If they're strong, either they don't care that they're weird, which is great. Like that's just, that's just living like an animal. I don't care. Put a big red spot on a dog's head. He doesn't care. He's just a dog. He doesn't know about that red spot. So you can either just be immune to culture or you start establishing culture. So in the tipping point, Malcolm Gladwell, right? Mm -hmm. He talks about how hush puppies were this brand of shoe that were so out of style. They were almost ready to disappear. Like the the company was going broke. What do they look like? Uh, they look like hush puppies. What can I say? They look, they're kind of suede with laces and we'll just have to look them up. They Google. look like orthopedic shoes. They look like okay. nurses' shoes. They're okay. not what many people, they're not like, you know, Milano Blahnik. Is that how you say that? Manolo. Manolo Blahnik shoes. Unless Manolo Blahnik decided to do a hush puppy. Anyway, the point is... They Google all- says hush puppies are delicious looking fried food. <laughs> well, maybe that's why they weren't doing well as shoes. <laughs> what, <have> you- <laughs> what are you wearing on your feet? Delicious fried food. <laughs> why are you dressed as a lobster? <laughs> um, anyway... Uh, a bunch of people in like the Lower East Side of, of Manhattan decided that these were so uncool, they were cool. And they started wearing these shoes. And they would go around and people would make fun of them. And they just stuck with it. And because they were trendsetters, hush puppies became madly successful again. And now they probably don't even look weird anymore. You've been Googling away. Did you find one? Yeah, I think they might have lifted their game since they became cool. They look fine to me. Uh, no, no, no. The culture changed its oh, game. Oh, the culture to changed make around hush it. puppies <gasps> cool again because there is no natural reason to choose one shoe over another. There is only consensus. Well, it's comfort. Comfort is the thing, and hush puppies are very comfortable. There you I, go. Good God, I've worn shoes that literally felt like a crocodile was chewing off my feet just so I would fit in, and hush puppies were not like those at all. But it changed the culture, so now hush puppies look fine. I love it. So I think the idea is first you set your spam filter. Got it. Unsubscribe. Right. Unsubscribe. Unsubscribe. Then the people you're letting through to influence you. Or the ideas. Yeah. They're more on your wavelength. Mm -hmm. And then you come to your senses by saying, what is me? Like, not what is it trendy, what is acceptable, but what is me? I've always been weird. (laughs) When I write and speak professionally, I have to tone it down, especially the part where I believe the universe loves us and is on our side. A few years ago, I decided to just show up online and say what I really think. This became The Gathering Pod, a series of discussions about how to thrive in a difficult world. So if you need hope, inspiration, or a chance to listen to someone much weirder than you could ever be, come join me on The Gathering Pot. Yeah, like what what looks beautiful to me. Yeah, what delights me. And I think you have to have turned off the spam for a while before you can even 
truly access that. Can I just say something on that point? I think you may need another person or at least some books to read. Like it's really hard to just say, I will set my own culture. You have to be kind of crazy to do that. That's why so many people who've gone out as, as sort of shamanic leaders in the world over prehistory and everything, they were a little nuts. Well, but I, I'm not sure I agree with you that you need other people or books. I I think Indeed. if there's enough silence and mm. and that's, I guess, what I'm getting at with silence of those cultural messages, like you're not watching the ads and you're not um, – and you, you're literally not subscribing to these ideas, then – over time, that silence will allow you to to get to that experience. Now, knowing it and being able to act on it back in the world, which is where we started with right. this, going back out into the world, that's that's two different things. But at least to be able to determine what's delightful to me, what's funny to me. So here's a little exercise practice because you know me. I'm a, I'm a life coach. I can't help myself. Like before you go outside tomorrow, stop and think, what clothes delight me? What are the most comfortable, the most beautiful to me, not to other people? Mm-hmm. Um, what am I going to do? Like what food seems best to me, not to whatever diet is trendy at the moment or what you're supposed to eat? What feels like a good way to raise a baby to me, not my mother-in-law? How do I want to walk down the street? As me. Yeah. Ministry of Silly Walks. There you go. It's there for a reason. People use it. <laughs> so yeah, do that. Just say, I, I'm, this is who I am. And if it's weird, say, number one, I'm filtering out the spam and 85% of everything is spam. And number two, watch me hang in here until I start setting the trend. Yeah. And, and just feeling how it's delightful to us yeah. you know like, like rejoicing how, in it absolutely yeah, yeah there's joy in that there's a lot more joy the more you unsubscribe to the fear right i think dogs are a good example because they will show such tremendous joy and goofiness and they're so in the moment of being dogs well cats are the, all animals all non-human animals just love being themselves yeah we're the only animal that tries not to be itself i think we should stop Let's stop. Let's That's just me. Does no. that mean we should stop our podcasting? I suppose at some point we should just stop. Good. Jollio. Then let's go sail a tall ship. Excellent. Off we go then. Okay. Pirate music. Um, because it's beautiful <laughs> to us. All right. We'll see you guys next time. And in the meantime, stay, stay wild. wild. If you're enjoying Bewildered, please consider rating and reviewing us, especially on Apple, as it does help other people find us. And that's what we're after, isn't it? For all the Bewildered to come together in one great big throng that just gets away from culture and everyone's an individual. I'm not. All right. I will catch you guys soon. Stay wild. We hope you're enjoying Bewildered. If you're in the USA and want to be notified when a new episode comes out, text the word WILD to 570-873-0144. For more of us, Martha's on Instagram, the Martha Beck. She's on Facebook, the Martha Beck. And she's on Twitter, Martha Beck. Her website is marthabeck.com. And me, I too am on Instagram, Rowan underscore Mangan. I'm on Facebook as Rowan Mangan. And I'm on Twitter as Rowan Mangan. Bewildered is produced by Scott Forster with support from the brilliant team at MBI.
You know, what I'm seeing out in the world is a lot of fear and a growing amount of despair. Maybe you're feeling that way too, because the ways our culture has taught us to navigate the world, to navigate our lives, they are failing us. We need a new language. We need a new set of tools to find our way individually and as a group. And I know we can still do this. I put everything I do know about it into Wayfinder Life Coach Training. And the tools that I teach there are to help people redefine how we relate to each other, how we make a living, how we do community. We can only change the world for the better if we redefine how we think and the world needs Wayfinders now more than ever. So please go to MarthaBeck.com and you'll find your way.